If you're new, I'd also like to welcome you. I'm Charlie, the lead pastor here. Really glad you are worshiping with us. And we are in the middle of a series on the book of Esther. And Esther is kind of one of these books that really, you know, the, the further you get along there in the Old Testament, where kind of really intersects with like some pretty well-known events and people in, in history. And it reminded me of um, this conversation that we had with Lauren, our middle daughter, who when she was a preschooler at the time, and she was asking some, some question about, about some current event kind of deal, some, some geography kind of deal. And so we, we, we connect the question that she was asking to those same places in the Bible. And she's like, no, 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 that's something I'm talking about. I'm not talking about what happens in Bible land. I'm talking about what happens like in, in this world. And so then you have this kind of bit of pastor like panic attack, right? Where you're like, my daughter doesn't believe the Bible's true and like, but it's like when you talk to her, it's like it wasn't that she didn't believe it was true. Like everything that happened in the Bible happened. It just happened in this other world. And it's not the same thing as this world. And even though that may not be what we think, I think some of us kind of approach the Bible a little bit like, like this way, like this is happening some other place. And when we talk about Israel, it's like, well, like, no, Israel, like, like the place that you can go to. And it talks about rivers and like, hey, I know the locations of these rivers and Again, now we're talking about historical events. And I think the more that we can kind of connect, especially the Old Testament, to historical events, uh, it can kind of help it feel a little more real and maybe just kind of unlock some of the, the confusion maybe that we have, intimidation we have with the Old Testament. And so we find ourselves here with Esther in a really interesting time in the history of Israel, but really of that entire region. And we'll just back it up a little bit to make sure we understand Old Testament history. You know, so... Israel is a nation, so, you know, a, in the same location that Israel today is, uh, you know, different borders or whatever, but Israel is a nation, and it had three kings when it was a united kingdom, and it only had, it was, so it only lasted for three generations as a united kingdom, and those guys were, names you may recognize, Saul, David, and Solomon, the guy who wrote the book that we just were looking at last month. And after that, they had a civil war, and it broke out into two kingdoms, a, a northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, and a southern kingdom named Judah. And most of the action of the people that we know that happened in Judah, the southern kingdom. And when Israel became to be Israel again, it was really the people of Judah that, you know, that, that ultimately became long-term Israel. But regardless, we've got this divided kingdom. And uh, in 721 B.C., the Assyrian kingdom came in and conquered and wiped out the northern kingdom. And essentially just wiped them off the map. Like, like ceased to exist kind of thing. Like they were just... They were just done. And then the, the northern kingdom hanged out, hung on for about another 125 years or so, so just about 597 B.C., somewhere around there. Um, the Babylonians, which again, now we're, as we pr- progress through time, like there's a name, like as, if you understand history, I mean, that was a pretty powerful kingdom at the time, and they, they conquered uh, the southern kingdom, and they had a different strategy. Essentially, they didn't want to wipe out the people that they were conquering, Essentially, they wanted to turn the people, they conquered, wanted to turn them into Babylonians. They kind of had a cultural assimilation plan. So they took the best and the brightest, the smart people, a lot of leaders, and they took them to the capital, essentially, we'll just call it for re-education. Try to assimilate them and to make them feel like they're, they're Babylonians. They, so they want to feel like that they were conquered by the Babylonians, like you wanted them to have the, the mindset that said, we're Babylonians. And then the people that were left, like farmers and whatever, to kind of take care of everything. 
they would bring, move in Babylonians into that region to intermarry and live with them again with this idea of becoming Babylonians. Well, that kingdom lasted for a while, but ultimately they were taken out by the Persians. We're fast-forwarding through time, you know, so Persians... Now, now they have conquered, and they have a completely different strategy. Obviously, they're Persians. They don't care about people being Babylonians. And they were actually they were fine with allowing the Jewish people to go back to establish um, their, their country. Not as an independent nation, but yeah, if you guys want to have Israel again, you go down there and do that. You can rebuild the city. That's fine. You can go live there. You can identify as Jews. That's fine. And even the book of Nehemiah... Um, Artaxerxes, who was, who was king at the time, was fine with Nehemiah, who was kind of, he was cupbearer. You can go down there, he wanted to rebuild the wall, and the king let him. Like, you can go down and build this wall, which you would think would be like a, an act of military defiance, but they could not have been less threatened by these people. Like, sure, go down there, build your wall, if it's going to make you happy, that's great, go, go, go do that. And so then it's around this time that God kind of sends out word through the prophets, and Mark referenced this last week, that you should... It's, it's time to go back and rebuild the nation. Not just simply towns, but really the idea of God's people. I said that you would be exiled, but then we will bring you back. And now is the time for everyone to come back. And this was the command that was put out there, but some people decided to stay. Some people, for you know, because they were particularly religious, didn't care what prophets or God had to say at all. Uh, other people you know, were kind of doing pretty well for themselves and didn't want to go to... It. You know, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, upper middle, living an upper middle class life, and now I'm going to go down and rebuild a town. I don't want to do that. And so Mordecai and his cousin Esther, Esther obviously was orphaned, and she was raised by her older cousin Mordecai. They, they, Mordecai decides to stay. We don't know if it's because he doesn't really care about God, what God says, or if it's just for kind of some personal reasons. Regardless, the, just even from a, a background, we need to recognize they shouldn't have been here. They should have followed God's commands and gone down and rebuild uh, the, the, the nation of Israel and ultimately God's people, but he chose to ignore that. And I, I think, that, I think that's, that's, that's important for us to understand because the circumstances that Esther finds herself in are pretty wild once you put the whole story together. Because we've got this story of this incredibly courageous, strong woman who, who, who does something incredible... But it, the story becomes more incredible the, 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 the darker you realize the story is and the darker the situation that Esther finds herself in it, as you figure this out. So we don't want to gloss over this because now we're talking about King Xerxes. And King Xerxes is a known figure. You can, you can look him up. You can learn things about him. He thought he was God. He was kind of a giant. He was an arrogant person and, and, and very cruel. And we see a glimpse of that in chapter 1 that Mark talked about last week. Where the queen, he's holding this kind of just months-long drunk party with his boys. And at, at, some, at some point in that, kind of looks at his guys like, you know what we should do? We should have the queen come. And he calls the queen in to do who knows what. But when your drunken, arrogant husband who thinks he's a god calls you and says, I want you to come here, most likely in her birthday suit, I want you to come in here. I want to show you off. Like, whatever's about to happen is not going to be great. And so she does actually something pretty brave and says, no, thank you. And then she ends up getting banished. And so then what happens next is this, again, this, this awful guy says, all right, well, I need a new queen. Gather up all the best-looking virgins in, the, in, in, in my kingdom and bring them to me. 
And then he forces himself upon them as, as an audition for who gets to be the next queen. And Esther gets caught up in this. And, and, that, and that's a terrible situation to be in. I mean, it, it, is, it, is, it is abuse. It is, it is horrible. And so she's in a place where she shouldn't have been because her, her guardian had them here when they, they shouldn't have been. And now um, she has been taken, taken into the harem of this awful king and then been tested upon to decide. And again, what she does is amazing. She rises above these terrible circumstances and conducts herself with a lot of grace and honor. And as we continue on, we're going to see with incredible strength. But I don't want us to get so caught up in how, just how great she was that we don't realize how terrible this situation was. Because again, it is her courage and strength in terrible circumstances that make this such a great story. And things do not get in any better. We're about to introduce to this guy, chapter 3, this guy named Haman, who is um, essentially the king's right-hand man. And when you are second in command of the Persian Empire, and the number one in command says he's God, whatever it is you think you are as number two is going to be pretty elevated. So we have here a really arrogant person who seems to really value other people, you know, worshiping him too, you know, kneeling down to him. And he's, just, he's, he's a terrible character. And we kind of get some intro into him. Verse 2, we'll pick, it up, pick up the story, Esther, chapter 3, verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. <clears throat> When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And so Haman's coming around, and he's just basically where he goes, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm the man, and I need you to pay me honor. And all the king's officials did this. The king said he was, they were supposed to. And they did, except for Mordecai. And in the Sunday school, Veggie Tales, kind of everybody here is everybody's a good guy, and this situation kind of gets glossed over. Um, Mordecai does this because he can't bow down to anybody but God. That is very, very unlikely not true. Because this guy had been in the presence of the king, and that king believed himself to be God. And if he was in the presence of the king and survived, then he definitely paid homage and bowed down to the king. So it's not like he's just got some blanket rule, because I worship only God, I'll never bow down to anyone else. That's just not true. And so it's got to be something else. And so it, it could just be just good old-fashioned pride. Actually, you know, Mordecai, you know, he was kind of rising in stature as you know, he, he helped foil this assassination plot against the king. is like, I'm not going to bow down to you. For, no, huh? I'm Mordecai. Or it could be, and I think this is most likely, it could be a combination, but I think this is probably most likely. You know, he says, Mordecai says, I'm a Jew. He doesn't say that in a religious way. He just says it in an in a, you know, a, a ethnic identity. Well, Haman was an, an Amalekite. And Amalekites were one of these groups of people 
that um, when Israel was coming out of Egypt to establish their land, one of the people that they essentially just, just wiped off the map. Obviously, some of them survived, but he's a descendant of that. And so there is a huge, long-term racial, cultural animosity between these two groups of people. And so, I'm a Jew, you're an Amalekite, and no, I'm not, I'm not going to pay honor to you. And so then, what Haman does is like, well, not only am I going to do something about you, I'm just going to see if I can wipe your entire race off the map. So he comes up with a plan. Again, we can use other words for it because it's a Bible story. He comes up with a genocide plan. We are going to wipe this race off the planet. And he goes to the king and says, there's this group of people out there, and they, they don't really, they're not really doing what they're supposed to do. They're not really living the way that they should. I think we should just destroy all of them. Are you in for genocide? I'll pay you if that will help. He's like, no need to pay. If you think they're no good, let's just do genocide. And so now everybody is crazy scared. And so now we get to Esther. No one knows that she's Jewish, but now the word is starting to get out. This has happened. She's in a place where she shouldn't be because her guardian didn't do the thing that God asked them to do. She has been gathered up into the king's harem and violated in ways that we shouldn't even think about. We don't want to think about anyway. And she has been put in this situation now where her and everyone in her family and everyone that she's, her entire race is about to get wiped out and she has not done anything. If anything, in part, this was provoked by Haman is a terrible, evil person. And Xerxes is, is so indifferent to people that aren't him. Genocide is the kind of thing he would gladly sign off on without even knowing who he's talking about or really why. So Haman's terrible. Xerxes is terrible. This is all happening to her. Mordecai kind of, in part, instigated some of this. And now here she is, a victim of a lot of different things. And here's the thing that she's going to have to do, and now we're going to try to connect this to you, because we've all got stories, and we've got parts of our stories that, that, are, that are not great, that aren't amazing, that have taken us to places we didn't want to go and to become people we didn't necessarily want to be. And so however it is you are here, just both personally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, how you got here, I want to say this, you need to deal with that. You need to deal with how you got here. Because here's what tends to happen. When our journey, our life begins to take uh, zigs and zags in ways that we don't like, when people do things to us, we find ourselves a victim of other people doing things to us, whether evil or indifferent or whatever, we tend to do one of two things. We tend to just pretend it didn't happen. Oh, you know, me, oh, things happen, life happens, and you just kind of paint over it and pretend that it didn't happen. And that is a recipe for an explosion later. Or we get stuck there. Well, I was going to live a good life. I was going to be the right kind of person. I was going to do this. I was going to do this. But then this happened, so shrug. And now I'm just a victim of circumstances that I can't control. And we think that that gives us a pass from life. And the thing is we can continue on in the story. I'm about to tell Esther. It's like Esther is able to look past all of the hurt and do something awesome. And I'm going to encourage you to do the same. But what I don't want you to hear me say is, sometimes life's tough and you need to suck it up. You need to just, you know, you know, 
like, a, like an over-aggressive dad, you know, you cry, you scrape your knee or your elbow or whatever. It's like, we don't cry. I'll give you something to cry about. You know, that kind of thing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not, I'm not, I don't want you to ever hear me say, well, I mean, bad things happen to everybody. Are we going to cry about it? Yes, you should cry about it. You should grieve it. You should process it. You should say, yeah, this was terrible. I didn't want this to happen to me. I didn't want to end up here. This person hurt me. And this is real. And I'm going to deal with it. I'm not going to ignore it. But I'm not going to be stuck in it either. Instead, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to process it. I'm going to talk to people, talk to friends. I'm going to talk about it with God. I'll interact with a counselor or whatever. Whatever it is that I feel like keeps me from being able to say yes to the next thing that God has for me. I'm going to deal with it. And honestly, we don't get to see a lot of that processing that happens for Esther. But again, the, the overwhelming amount of courage that she shows in some really terrible circumstances demonstrates, I think, at some point, some sort of healthy process of rising above some incredibly awful circumstances. So we continue on here, and um, Mordecai is, finds out that Haman has done this, and is just, you know, he's, 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 you know, he's completely shaken by it, obviously, that now, that because he's failed to bow down to Haman, that now his entire people are about to get wiped off the planet. So he is grieving about it, and turns, and it's interesting that he turns to his old religious customs. He, he puts himself in sackcloth rather than, than clothes, and just, he's not eating. And he's kind of doing these things that were, again, religious practices that, that historically his people have done. And so we see, even in this awful circumstance, we're starting to see God, even if, again, he's not named specifically in the book, turning this person, turning these people towards him. Well, Esther catches wind that Mordecai is not himself anymore. He's not eating. He's not, he can't come into the, the kingdom anymore, come into the palace anymore because he's not wearing appropriate clothes. He's out there in, in these sackcloths. You know, like, what's going on? So she sends these messengers. He sent, she sends a messenger to talk to Mordecai. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 4, verse 7. Mordecai told him, again, Esther's kind of emissary, told him everything that had happened to him including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict of their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent in this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So we have this story here, like they're going back and forth, and, and she finds out from Mordecai what's going on. Hey, we're all about to get wiped off, wiped off the planet. 
And he's like, you need to do something about it. You have access to the king. You should talk to the king. And she says, I can't do that. You can only go talk to the king if the king summons you. And if he doesn't summon you, then he just kills you because you're not allowed to be, again, in the God's presence unless he calls for you, unless by some strange coincidence, like he, he's willing to raise his scepter. But who would, who would do that? You, this is just not what's done. I will take a pause here because I think this is an important point. If you've ever heard of this story before, how this story gets sanitized and becomes a little confusing. It was a, it was a, it was a, a two- to four-part story in my Sunday school class growing up. And the first week was always this, that, that the, the queen did something to the king Xerxes that he didn't like, and so he told her she had to go. And so the king then looks for another queen. He gathers up all the girls, and he tries to find who the best person to be the queen was. And he meets Esther, and Esther is beautiful and nice, and Xerxes loves her the best, and so he makes her the queen. But if you've been paying attention, and hopefully you have, you know that there's a lot wrong with that. But that's the story as it's told. And then you come back seven days later, same class, same teacher, everything, sitting there in Sunday school. And they come back and say, and now this plot has come where the bad guy Haman wants to, to kill Esther and all her people. And Mordecai tells her, you've got to do something about this. You've got to go talk to the king. But she's very scared to go and talk to the king because the king might kill her if she comes next to him. I never understood that part of the story. It was the most confusing thing in the world. You just told me seven days ago that he loves her, he's the most beautiful and the most awesome thing in the world, and now she's scared to be like, hey, what's up? You're going to kill my whole family. Please don't. He's like, no, he might. Like, it didn't make any sense. And so like, the greatest moment of courage that she shows kind of gets glossed over because we can't tell the first part of the story well enough. We're so creeped out by it. She had very this dude thought he was God, had had banished the first queen for being unwilling to engage in what was probably going to be a highly inappropriate sex act in front of his whole squad. And she has been violated by this man, taken against her will, and this dude thinks he's God, and you want me to just walk up to him? No. She's every right to be scared. And Mordecai, again, I think we can see him, his character kind of shifting again more towards a God-honoring approach. He says, listen, you're not going to be able to escape this. And again, I think this is a statement of faith on his part as he's slowly coming back around. You know, relief and deliverance for the Jews will come from another place. There again, God's kind of silently behind that. I think you just see him... Can't quite verbalize it, but it's like this idea. God is not going to abandon us. And then he says something incredibly powerful that ultimately turns it for her. And ultimately, I want it to turn a, a little bit the course of how you view your own life. He says this to her. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I understand you're scared. I understand a lot of bad things can happen. But hear me say this, what if this is why you're here? What if this is why God has you here for such a time as this? And so I say to you that you need to deal with however it is you got here, whatever hurt or baggage 
or, or, or bad things that have happened in your past that have brought you to where you are personally, spiritually, all the hurt that you've done to yourself, like Mordecai, the hurt that has been done to you, like Esther, the combination of both in everybody's lives. Whatever it is, you need to deal with it. But ultimately, you've got to understand this, that God has you here now for a reason. Deal with your past. Deal with your pain. But right here, right now, God has you here because He's wanting to do something incredible in and through your life. You walk through those front doors in the church every Sunday and, and you don't notice it, but it's right here on the right. It's our mission statement. And it says that God is calling us as a church to reach people, to become fully devoted to Christ, but also to be world changers for Christ. And here's the thing. God has placed you here because He believes that you can change the world. God wants to use you to impact the world in such a way where people's lives will be changed forever. That people will find hope and life and God through Jesus in a way because of you. That is what He wants you to do. It's not just what He wants the church to do. It's not what He wants pastors to do. He, he wants to do this in you. And however it is you got here, I'm not going to be stuck by that anymore. It doesn't matter how the journey got, got me here. I believe in this moment, that God has me here because He wants to do something great in me. He wants to do something great through me. And I say this, and if you've been around for a while, you've probably heard me say this a handful of times in a handful of different ways, but I, want you, I, I so desperately want you to believe it. And I think one of the reasons sometimes we get stuck is because we think it can only be something huge and epic and we ignore the small thing. Or, we don't have the eyes, we're not willing to look at the big thing that God may want to do. It doesn't have to be epically huge and big at first. And I'll tell you a story that happened just this morning. I make McDonald's like I always am, and there's, it, it's me and, and a couple of older couples that are always there. They come dressed for church. We were all just kind of like, hey, we kind of have that kind of relationship. Hey, 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 like... We're all church people, kind of. That's, uh, that's, that's our bond. We're all church people that go to McDonald's. It's, so I'm, at this moment, I'm, I'm, I'm locked in on my iPad getting, putting the finishing touches on this. I didn't even notice. And again, there's a metaphor there. I didn't even notice the homeless guy that walked into the McDonald's. I didn't even notice. I'm just too busy doing the thing I'm doing. I didn't notice anything until the McDonald's worker comes out with his tray just overflowing with food and multiple beverages. And she tries to bring it to him. And she, he's like, I didn't, I didn't order that. And this couple over here is like, we, we got that for you. I hope you have a blessed day. God brought them at least to McDonald's that morning to make a difference in the life of this one dude. Is a very small thing that had a huge blessing in his life. And, you know, no, no, can't can't put together the long-term impact that that will have, but it'll have an impact on him that day. And at a minimum, random dude in the corner who tries to keep to himself, he noticed it and told a few hundred people today. These are the kinds of things that you can, you can do. Having conversation with somebody yesterday, and they're just talking, it's like, I, I think God, God, God may want me to lead a Bible study for women. And I was able to say, yes, I think that is exactly what you're supposed to do. And we say these things, we say them too often. We say them real timid, like we're not really sure that's what God wants. 
Yes, that's what he wants. Hey, I think we should put a mural that put up, put up there by our front door that makes sure everybody knows this is a place where you can belong. You think we should do that? Yes, yes, you should do that. And then we've got people in our church who don't just, who aren't, it's not just the little thing, but are taking big steps to do incredible things. Guys who, taking their position of leadership and influence at work, who are now leading small groups and, and, and having incredible ministries to the people at their work. We've got lots of people, and there's cards there in the back, lots of people who've been a part of this church and have realized that God has orchestrated their circumstances where He's calling me to go to the other side of the world and take the message of Jesus to people who aren't going to hear it otherwise. From the small to the, to, to, to the incredibly big, God has something great for you to do. And it does not matter to me that you do not believe it. I believe it. I believe in you. That God has called you to change the world. To make a difference for Him in this world. That is what God has called you to. We believe that for you. And so Esther responds... She responds to this charge from Mordecai here about maybe, who knows, maybe this is why you're here. And she sends this reply, verse 15. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I, I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. She said, I'll give it a shot. This may be what God has called me to do. I'll do it. If I die, I die. But here's the thing that she knew. There's no way she was going to be able to do it by herself. And whatever awesome thing God has for you in the future, you're not going to be able to do it by yourself. And we'll end with this. We need each other. We need each other. We, she knew. She understood. If I'm going to do this, I'm the only one that's going to be able to go in front of the king. But Mordecai, I need you to know that you're with me. And again... Again, a turning back to their, to, to, to their connections with God, the things that they would do in worship of God. We need to fast. We need to not eat as a sign of unity with each other, a sign of unity with God, that we want God with us, that we need to be in this together. And she asks her attendants to do the same thing. She can't do this by herself. And whatever it is God has for you, you can't do it by yourself. She needed an incredible amount of counsel even to get to the point to where she was willing to consider it. Back and forth, back and forth. No, you need to do this. You need to do this. And then once she even made the decision, okay, I think I'm going to try, she needed people with them. And that is the kind of church that we want to be. A kind of church that is standing behind and beside and in front and all around each other, helping one another have the courage to make the decision and then the strength to make it happen. Don't try it by yourself. And I want to say this again. I believe in you. I believe in whatever hurts and past that you have, that God wants to heal you and carry you through it. And then He wants to give you a different set of spiritual eyes to view your life and the world around you in a different way as a place of, why did God put me here? What does He want to do? And if you surround yourself with the right kind of people, then this room will be full of world changers. 
And so as we respond, let's just figure out where we need, what, what's next for us. For some of you, all you really heard today is I gave you permission to cry and to process and to try and heal from your past. And if that's so, then that's great. You get the people around you, you need to do that. But even in that process, we all need to kind of have this idea of like, I want to do this so that then God can give me the eyes that I need to see my life in the world in a different way. And God, please surround me with people. So as always, we've got a lot of different ways to kind of have a spiritual response. Our prayer team has been back there praying for you the whole time. If you need that encouragement, please go back there and pray. Again, the people that have already gone to other sides of the world to do incredible things, they need us still. And there's, there's prayer cards back there for some of them. Um, we have uh, communion back there as a way to connect with God through Jesus and remember and commemorate His death on the cross for you. Uh, there's prayer candles praying at the cross. You can pray where you are. We've got a chance to worship. We've got a chance to give. Again, another statement of how we're in this together. But let's just be praying and believing that God wants to heal us and use us together. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for the awesome men and women here in this room. Thank you for the men and women who are already taking those kind of small steps to make a big difference. God, I thank you for all the people here who serve in our Grove Kids making a difference in the world each and every week by loving on these kids. And God, and all the people and all the different serving teams here, the people, God, who are loving on the broken and the hurting and, and those uh, struggling with homelessness. God, I thank you for those people who, are, who have who've made it their vocation to do crazy things for you all over the world. And God, I pray that you would not let anyone here walk out of here not believing that, God, that you've got a great plan and a future for them. Give us the eyes to see, the healing that we need to have those eyes, and the unity to make it happen together. And we love you, God. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.